Diplomacy's equivalent of the military's special forces is the expeditionary diplomat, a re resourceful professional with specialized training from the Department of Defense and CIA who can take on the toughest diplomatic assignments in high threat, unstable, or failed states. These specialized ambassadors play a central role in keeping the peace in volatile areas, and we are so lucky to have these individuals with us tonight. Good evening and welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Our program tonight features legendary retired ambassadors Ryan Crocker, Robert Ford, and Ann Patterson, as well as the author of The Ambassadors, Paul Richter. Paul profiles these three diplomats, along with Christopher Stevens, who was tragically killed in Libya in 2012, in his book, The Ambassadors, America's Diplomats on the Front Lines. Tonight, in a conversation moderated by Jim Falk, we will hear about their experiences as expeditionary diplomats and why Paul chose to feature them in his book. That being said, please remember to purchase a copy of Paul's book, The Ambassadors, at Interrobang Books, our local bookstore partner, and remember to use the code DFWWORLD for a 10% discount for all of our audience. And remember, it goes towards all of the books in your cart, not just Paul's book. We have a full schedule of virtual programs, so of course be sure to uh, check out our website at dfwworld.org for all of our newly scheduled events. And as I was previously posted at the World Affairs Councils of America in Washington, D.C., I'm very happy to be able to thank them, along with the Middle East Institute, for being partners of tonight's event. I'd also like to recognize the Cleveland Council on World Affairs, the World Affairs Council of Jacksonville, and the World Affairs Council of Tacoma for their promotional support. In addition to the promotional support we, re we receive, we're also very grateful to all of our financial supporters. Tonight, I'd like to especially thank Jessica, Jessica Colaney, and Travis Kelly for their continued support of the council, especially through their program sponsorship. Years ago, they were both interns at the council and now some of our very generous donors. So thanks you too, and I hope I'm able to see you again soon. I'd like to remind everyone that you too can sponsor a program for $500 or $1,000. And to get in touch with our Alana Boyne Rostro, at 956-466-1149 about sponsorship opportunities. Moderating tonight's discussion is Jim Falk, now serving as President Emeritus after his recent retirement. Jim served our council well for 20 years, and I know we're in for a treat as he leads the discussion with our guests. And now, Jim, I hand it over to you and thank Liz, you. and thanks for inviting me to be with everyone tonight. And this is a discussion that will not take most, much leading. I think I'll just try to hang on. Let me quickly introduce Paul Richter. He covered the State Department and foreign policy as a Washington-based correspondent for the LA Times. And throughout a career of almost three decades, he reported from 60 countries 
You mentioned the title of his book, The Ambassadors, America's Diplomats on the Front Lines. It was the 2020 winner of the Douglas Dillon Award on the Practice of American Diplomacy. And I read the book, now it's hard to believe because it was probably about 18 months ago. And I was so eager to have all the ambassadors and Paul on the same stage here in Dallas. And in fact, we had it all arranged. And then the pandemic, of course, put those plans aside. But what struck me about the book was how Paul was able to tie so many of the complicated threads together. And as our viewers know well, when you're talking about the Middle East, that's really an impossible task. As I mentioned, we had planned to do the program a year ago. Um, but, and so since we have so many people on, on the call, as your moderator tonight, I really am going to have a very minimal presence, I hope, and have encouraged all of our guests to engage in a conversation among themselves. Uh, my role will be to work in your questions. And as you know, I like to weave those into the conversation. So welcome to all of you and thanks for being here. And special thanks to Jessica and Travis as well. Uh, Ambassador Crocker um, uh, had Jessica in some of his classes. So uh, I know he's pleased to see Jessica as well. Paul, why don't we just start by, I mean, you, you, you've, you've, you wrote two other books. Um, you've covered foreign policy and defense for a number of years. What led you to uh, write this book? And, and really, how did you select these four ambassadors? And I'm curious about uh, your decision to include Chris Stevens. That must have been a decision you, you really thought about. Yes, thanks, Jim. Um, so as you said, I covered uh, foreign affairs for the LA Times for, for many years, from the 9-11 attacks till the end of the Obama years. And in that period, I noticed that in, during those years when the US was dealing with war and civil upheaval across the greater Middle East, top officials in the State Department kept turning to the same small circle of diplomats to be ambassadors to countries on the edge. Most ambassadors go to stable countries where bilateral relations have been largely worked out. But these diplomats were sent into chaotic situations where Washington was trying to figure out its course. And they sometimes had to take on huge tasks, helping form new governments, brokering deals between major blocs, helping oversee military operations sometimes. Their, their jobs were sometimes more like those of British colonial viceroys than normal ambassadors. And often they risk their lives in performing their duties. You could call them uh, the best people for the worst places. And I thought I'd have a fascinating story if I talked about them. And it was a story that would provide insight into what the US had done right and done wrong in the region. So I focused on four career diplomats, Ryan Crocker, a six-time ambassador who led the embassy in Iraq at the height of the Civil War, headed the embassy in Afghanistan twice, um, and was also ambassador to Pakistan in this period. Ann Patterson, who was amb ambassador to Pakistan at the height of the US drone campaign there, headed the embassy in Egypt uh, in the turbulent period after its revolution and was also acting ambassador to the UN in this period. Robert Ford, who was ambassador to Syria at the start of its civil war, was number two in Iraq and was also ambassador to Algeria in these years. 
and also Chris Stevens, who was ambassador to Libya in 2012, uh, when he was killed in the terrible militant attack in Benghazi. Stevens had earlier been the special envoy to the Libyan rebels and the number two in the embassy in Libya. So <clears throat> I talked to a lot of experienced diplomats, people like uh, Bill Burns, the former deputy secretary of state, uh, to get some ideas on who to focus on. And there was wide agreement that these four were good choices. This of course was a difficult period for the US and the region. The US presidents never really figured out the puzzle of the Middle East, but through these struggles, regional specialists like these provided steady advice and helped find a way forward. I was struck recently by a, by a remark by former Defense Secretary Robert Mer uh, McNamara about the value of the State Department's regional specialists. He wrote in his book in 95 that in dealing with the Soviets in the early Cold War period, the US had the benefit of good advice from uh, knowledgeable diplomats like George Kennan, Llewellyn Thompson, and Chip Bolin. During the Vietnam War, McNamara said, the US had no such help and a profound ignorance of that country's people and politics. The lack made an enormous difference, McNamara wrote. You know, it, I, I think the title for your first chapter is the best people for the worst places, which is probably a good description. Ambassador Patterson, I'm, I'm wondering, you, you, you specialized in economics. When you began your career, did you have any idea that you would become a regional specialist in the way that you, your career took you? No, uh, not at all, really. Uh, I guess I expected to sort of uh, uh, serve out my career and pretty much where I started, which was in Latin America. Because, because that was sort of the way it worked. And uh, you, you built up contacts, you built up the language, you built up the knowledge and, and that sort of uh, sustained you for many years. But I was a part of a tandem couple that also made a difference. My husband was in the State Department and uh, that got us to Saudi Arabia and into Arabic language training. So it was, uh, you know, coincidences happen. I think Ambassador Stevens was in the Peace Corps in Morocco. So I think you could say he had a strong interest in the Middle East from the beginning. What about the rest of you? Well, it, um, it's all about serendipity sometimes. I, I joined the Foreign Service right out of my undergrad degree. I had been um, abroad with my parents. My father was a career Air Force officer. Um, I graduated high school in Turkey. Um, and while Turkey is not formerly a part of the Middle East, they used to own it all. Uh, so when I joined the service, um, I thought it just a natural to put in for the Middle East. Uh, I found five Middle Eastern posts opening up and got none of them. Uh, I, uh, I got Guatemala instead. Uh, and you know, I'm 22 years old, uh, send me anywhere, I don't mind. Uh, Partway, two weeks into Spanish training, I got a call at night saying that the, they'd felt badly in the program that I didn't get one of my five. Something had changed. Would I like to go to Horamshar? And I said, oh, yeah, sure. Yes, that's great. Uh, let's come in the, tomorrow morning and we'll do the paperwork. I hung up, got the atlas out and looked up Horamshar because I had no idea where it was, but it had to be in the Middle East. And uh, uh, it wasn't so serendipity to get to Horamshar and then serendipity the rest of the way. Um, I didn't 
really ask for specific assignments after that. I just got them and they all, they were all in the Middle East. What do you think about this, that some countries, some countries put a lot more emphasis on regional specialization while typically the State Department has not. Are you for that or not? Ambassador Ford. I think it's a mixed bag, frankly. Uh, it's hard to learn Arabic and it takes a lot of time. And it's a shame after person spends a lot of time mastering the language to only use it for a couple of years and then never return to a part of the world where you would use it again. And frankly, if the US government paid for your training, it's probably not the best use of taxpayer money. But on the other hand, I do think that bringing fresh perspectives to a problem uh, from outside, perspectives from outside the region sometimes can be useful. When I was in Syria, I often thought we needed more people who had worked in places like the Balkans. Full disclosure, I had the pleasure of going to Afghanistan thanks to Ambassador Crocker, who a few years ago, I think it was 2012, invited a, a half dozen World Affairs Council leaders to um, be at the embassy and do a fact finding that was so valuable. And so we had the opportunity to watch the ambassador with uh, President Karzai. And um, I, I'd, I'd like you, each of you worked in your ambassador positions with some pretty challenging, tough people. Uh, ambassador Ford, did, did you have much contact with uh, Bashar al-Assad? Only met him twice. Um, and I have to say Bashar al-Assad speaks fluent English. He studied medicine in the, United, uh, in the United Kingdom, in London. Um, cannot say that the meetings were particularly remarkable. Um, he was polite. Um, frankly, he didn't have a lot of presence compared to some of the other presidents and prime ministers that I had met during my career in the region. People like uh, Hosni Mubarak or Iraqi President uh, Jalal Talabani who had a certain air about them rather lacking in Bashar al-Assad, frankly. Um, to be honest, the toughest characters that I dealt with, um, I'd be interested in what Ryan thinks about this too, but I thought the toughest characters I dealt with actually were the Iraqis. Ryan, yeah, I think that's it to you. <laughs> uh, that, yeah, that, I would completely agree with that. Uh, uh, you know, the Iraqis are known as the toughest guys and gals on the Middle Eastern bloc and uh, Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher, at leeb at dbu.edu. Uh, they like that reputation. Uh, you know, one of the jokes that were, was in circulation was um, that uh, Hajjaj bin Yusuf, one of the companions of the Prophet back in the day, uh, heading to Pakistan to um, uh, spread the message of Islam had to detour into Iraq uh, because it was in rebellion, uh, which he put down in very bloody fashion. Uh, 
Uh, and the Iraqis like to say, uh, Iraq has only been ruled twice um, by individuals who knew how to wield the club. One was Hajjaj bin Yusuf, the other was Saddam Hussein. Uh, it, is, uh, it is no place for those who insist on following Robert's Rules of Order. We are definitely gonna talk about what's happening in Afghanistan today, but Ambassador Crocker, tell us a little bit about the relationship, the personal relationship that you had with Karzai and how you were able to navigate Washington and, and, and be in a sense his supporter, but also give him tough messages. Well, thanks for the question because it really is all about uh, personal relationships. Uh, sometimes they can be adversarial, um, uh, sometimes not, but they are key. I, I had the privilege of going out to reopen our embassy after the um, overthrow of the Taliban. I got to uh, uh, Afghanistan just uh, beginning of very beginning of 2002. Karzai had uh, gotten there just about 10 days before me, uh, coming out of the Bonn conference, which had anointed him um, uh, chairman of the interim authority. And uh, you know, we we spent a lot of time together in that early going, trying to figure out what happens now. Uh, and Paul captures this in his, his book. Uh, one early breakfast, uh, he said, we need a flag. What should it look like? Uh, sketched it out on a napkin, uh, made a few adjustments, handed the napkin to a staffer and said, go down to the market and have them run one up. Now, that is today's Afghan flag. So uh, we, uh, we developed a pretty close bond under those circumstances. Uh, I uh, left Afghanistan to start working the Iraq thing. Uh, in the spring of 2002, uh, but I, I kept a certain connection. When I was ambassador to Pakistan, Ron Newman in Kabul invited me over uh, a couple of times to just, the three of us to have dinner together, Karzai, Ron, and, and myself. And uh, I you know, tried to use that occasion to explain to President Karzai why the Pakistanis did the things they did. Uh, and then in that, 2011, when I was asked by the president to go back to Afghanistan as ambassador, uh, he, he gave me two charges. One of them was um, recalibrate and revive the relationship with Karzai. Uh, it had gotten pretty bad between him and us uh, for reasons partly his fault, partly ours. Uh, but I was able to draw on that, uh, that time before and uh, sometimes we had some pretty tough conversations, but, but we did agree that we would not attack publicly the other, um, that we would uh, yell at each other privately and, and by and large um, uh, that, that held. Ambassador Patterson, did you have to do shuttle diplomacy between the military and President Morsi or how did you handle that? Well, yes, and, and I think developing relationships at the higher level of government is probably the most critical job that an ambassador has. And, and a lot of shuttle diplomacy, both in Pakistan and Egypt. Uh, and keep in mind, though, at least 
in most cases, the American ambassador has access because you, you then during our careers, it was the height of American power. So you can get in the door, which a lot of ambassadors couldn't do. Almost invariably, people at the highest levels of government were willing to receive the American ambassador. Um, General, now President Al-Sisi uh, told me when I left that I'd met with him 32 times. And I would just sit there late at night uh, in his uh, in his sort of sitting room and listen to him talk about every conceivable subject. So they have to hear the bad news from you. You have to be able to deliver the bad news in a polite and and perhaps even a humble way because lots of people expect the U.S. ambassador to throw his or her weight around. So you have to be careful not to uh, comply with that stereotype. But yes, toward the end, I did a lot of shuttle diplomacy that. Uh, turned out, frankly, not to work. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the State Department. And Paul, let me bring you into the conversation. We have a question from uh, Mr. Dixon, or, or could be Miss, excuse me. It, uh, what condition is the State Department in after the last administration, in your view? Well, I think the, the ambassadors can speak to that too. But what's happened is there's been <clears throat> A lot of openings were left in the structure. A lot of the most experienced people left because um, <clears throat> they thought there wasn't a, a, a place for them. Um, the Trump administration brought in more political appointees to crucial spots, uh, to more senior ambassadorships. Um, and it left um, uh, many positions empty. There were uh, senior management positions that were empty or filled with a political appointees. And so I think um, a lot of the Foreign Service staff have, were kind of hoping that, uh, that the Trump team would be replaced by a new administration that was more um, you know, on their wavelength. And I think that's, that's what's happened. Um, the issue now for the Biden administration is how to, how to rebuild it. So we have a question from one of our viewers in Virginia Beach, Maria Zamet. Given the increasing proportion of political appointees as ambassador, particularly in the last administration, what is the future for expeditionary diplomats or will they always have a place in countries of, of conflict? Uh, ambassador Crocker, we'll, we'll let you do that one. Uh, well, it's a great question. Um, and uh, as you would recall, Jim, Maria, uh, was with you on that delegation. Uh, uh, she had uh, led a previous one when I was ambassador to Iraq. And uh, I just like to put in a plug here for the World Affairs Councils, uh, almost a hundred um, of them now across the country. Uh, beyond question, they are a critical link between the world of Washington foreign and national security policy uh, and the people of our country. Uh, play a huge role in bringing these complex issues uh, to the, uh, the citizens of America. And the Dallas-Fort Worth uh, chapter is among the very, very best. I just did want to get that down as particularly just Jim, as uh, you and Liz do the handover, uh, nothing quite like it. In terms of political appointees, it is unique <laughs> among major powers to us. Uh, all of us career types really don't like it. Um, we've seen the percentages climb. Uh, 
under, frankly, both Presidents Obama and Trump, uh, hope very much that uh, President Biden is going to reverse that. And uh, I'm encouraged by the appointments he is making in the foreign affairs arena. Uh, uh, Bill Burns, mentioned before, is uh, on tap to be Director of Central Intelligence, again, a, a career foreign service officer who served as Deputy Secretary of State. And then folks like Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor, Tony Blinken, Secretary of State. Uh, uh, these are not uh, career officers, but boy, they've been in this so long that we tend to think of them that way. Uh, do, do any of you see a place for career, uh, political appointees? Can I Go say ahead, that? Ford, and then Absolutely. I, I want to say that I, I was very fortunate in my career because I worked for two absolutely extraordinary political appointees. One was Senator Jack Danforth and when he was ambassador to the United Nation. And the second was, was somebody from whom I learned a great deal. And that was Morris Abrams, who had been president of Brandeis and a prosecutor at Nuremberg and head of the president of the Conference of President of American Jewish Organizations. And he had a very different way of looking at things. It was very instructive. Plus he knew everybody on the planet. So that was, that was sort of fun too. And each administration, to be absolutely fair, has some very outstanding political ambassadors and some, um, some career ambassadors who aren't outstanding, who, who, who basically tank. So yes, there, there are lots of good political ambassadors and there's certainly a place for them, I think, uh, in our diplomatic service. Ambassador Ford, no, you had your hand up. I was just gonna say, um, when I was the American ambassador in Algeria, uh, the American ambassador next door in Morocco, Tom Riley from uh, Silicon Valley was outstanding and uh, avoided the sort of clientitis uh, that a lot of ambassadors get. They almost forget they're representing the United States and not the government of the country to which they're accredited. Um, Tom was outstanding and um, I know his staff liked him because my wife was on his staff and I heard a lot of gossip. So um, I think it depends on the person. What I will say and answer your question, Jim, about expeditionary, not sure I like the word, but, but it, it makes it sound really um, marvelous. Uh, I don't think you're going to get a lot of political ambassadors that want to go um, out to countries either where there's a lot of violence or there's a lot of terrorism or instability in civil wars. Um, my experience in the State Department, I don't know what Ann and Ryan think, is political appointees usually like to go to places um, where the order of the day is um, maybe a nice dinner, a nice uh, reception. Um, maybe a little less of the bodyguards and uh, the shell fire. So, and the other thing I would just say is most political appointees don't speak a lot of foreign languages. And to the extent that you wanna send people into tough situations who can speak the language, maybe have a little regional experience, you won't find many political ambassadors who fit that bill. There are a few, uh, but they are the exception, not the rule. And I should mention that here in Dallas, we've had some exceptional political appointees, uh, Bob Jordan and Jim Oberweider in Saudi Arabia, Catherine Hall uh, in Austria. So there's certainly an argument to have them. Uh, let's do this. I'm gonna ask you each to take uh, 45 seconds to a minute on this question. 
Uh, Mark Grossman, who many of us know, past chairman of the World Affairs Councils of America, Nick Burns worked on a study for that was uh, supported by Harvard, Council on Foreign Relations uh, came out with a study about reforms for the Department of State. Uh, let's start with you, Ambassador Patterson. What are the reforms that you'd recommend and how achievable are they? And let's each of you take about a minute. So, so that, the, the report done by Mark Grossman was basically honcho by Belford Harvard. And there's a second report done by the Council on Foreign Relations. And, and they're both excellent. The, the Mark Grossman report has actually more actionable items. And the first one to start with, because this is absolutely key, is getting more people for the Foreign Service. It's necessary, but not sufficient to revitalize the State Department. And that will enable us to train people more than we do now, which is hardly at all. It will enable us to staff more effectively uh, posts like Pakistan and Algeria, difficult posts where people don't stay long enough to know where they're doing. So that's the place to start. Then the Foreign Service needs basically a total revamp of its educational and training system which the Grossman Report goes into in quite some detail where people can take a year off and study like they do in the military. Uh, I know that Robert saw this when I was at Yale, there were two military officers in my class. One was a chaplain and the Foreign Service just doesn't do that. And it needs to do that where people have time to reflect on the policy and also improve their skills. So that's where I'd start. There were a number of recommendations, but that's a good start. Ambassador Crocker. I would absolutely endorse Anne's uh, two recommendations. Uh, my particular interest is um, to shift the way we look at risk. Uh, coming out of the Benghazi attack and the death of <clears throat> our friend Chris Stevens and his colleagues, uh, and then the, uh, the Benghazi hearings um, in the House have, have basically given us a uh, a zero risk mentality that uh, if someone gets badly hurt or killed uh, out, out in the field doing their jobs, then somebody back home is going to pay for it. Uh, so it's a complete bunker mentality that uh, uh, you can't do this, you can't go there, you can't, you can't, you can't. Uh, well, there's no point in having a foreign service if the Foreign Service officers cannot get out of the embassy and do their job. Uh, you know, I, I just have seen this repeatedly. In, in, uh, when I got to Iraq, I got the conventional letter from the president, uh, George W. Bush at the time, telling me that um, my most important role was to keep my people safe. Uh, highest responsibility. And I, I went back and said, uh, either you change the letter or you change ambassadors. Uh, you know, I cannot lead a mission in a war zone uh, with zero risk to my people. And they, they did modify the letter. It is now in the uh, Grossman report as well. Uh, we have got to back away from this zero loss syndrome or we're going to lose a whole lot more than um, a few people here and there. Why do you think that's come about? Well, it, it, uh, it started actually after the 1983 bombing of our embassy in Beirut. Uh, I am a survivor of that episode. Uh, that led to an overhaul of um, our security posture uh, that launched the series of the current series of 
Inman constructed embassies named after Admiral Bobby Inman, uh, who did the study that are um, able to withstand all kinds of attacks. Uh, problem is, well, it keeps people out. It also keeps people in because of the associated restrictions that um, uh, you, you just, you can't take a risk. Uh, now, so it, it is not a, it didn't start with the murder of Chris Stevens. It started long before it, but the Benghazi hearings have really given us a situation now uh, in which um, uh, we are, we are kind of locked in. And we've also, of course, through that process, we, we've actually incentivized our enemies. Um, that if you can bag a foreign service officer, the whole State Department's gonna shut down. Uh, so uh, it's a bad place, uh, but uh, we, we've just gotta figure our way out of it, as have, of course, um, our, some of our brother and sister agencies like the Central Intelligence Agency. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, of course, like our military, uh, it, whatever expeditionary means, if, if you're going to be doing that, uh, it means you are going to be on an expedition. And by definition, that isn't sitting in your embassy. Good points. Ambassador Ford, how would you look at the Grossman report or the CFR? Yeah. So I, I just want to underline my total agreement with what Ryan was just saying, underlining two key points. Number one, uh, the mentality, the bunker mentality has to be changed. And that requires changing the way the State Department investigates and uh, assigns responsibility when someone is injured or God forbid killed on the job. Um, Ryan, people were killed when we were there up in Mosul. And um, it, it, it's sad, nobody wants it, um, but sometimes there are higher callings in the, uh, for the service of the country. And I think that needs to be accepted, not just in the military, but also in the State Department. Um, and I would just also underline the incredibly pernicious, pernicious impact of the Benghazi hearings. Um, I don't think, uh, I, really the irony of that after Chris's murder, uh, Chris of all people would have been appalled by it, absolutely appalled and appalled at what happened as a result, this bunker mentality. Um, so that's one point. Second issue, uh, you know, the United States is, is just a great country. And one of the things that the State Department, I think, needs to be able to better tap into are people who are sort of mid-career and very good at something. Maybe they're like thinking of current events. Maybe they're a, a kind of a disease public health expert, but would like to go overseas and work for a while. The State Department needs to figure out a way to bring people in mid-career, um, assign them relevant work. Don't put them on the visa line for their first assignment. And, uh, and benefit from their expertise. Maybe they only stay three, four, five years. Uh, that's fine too. And then they leave again. But while they're in the department, we benefit from that specialized skill. There has to be a way to recruit them uh, to get their security clearances quickly um, and then assign them to relevant work in whatever that specialty may be. So let's bring Carlos into the conversation. And he asks, from your observations, what country, which country has a really good foreign service. Which country has impressed you? Any of you? 
Ambassador Crocker. Um, clearly, other countries put more uh, time and effort into equipping their diplomats with skills to work in uh, difficult but important parts of the world. And it, this goes back to Anne's earlier point. Um, the Russians and the Chinese, for example, uh, their diplomats will get, oh my goodness, um, two, three, four, five years of, of Arabic language study, uh, including uh, after they are reasonably proficient, they'll get, uh, get admitted to a regional university uh, in Egypt, Jordan, wherever, uh, as graduate students, and they will pursue their work in Arabic. Uh, not only do they have superb language skills, they get to know their classmates. Uh, they develop those personal questions because these are people who are going to go on to big things in our own countries. Okay. Ambassador uh, Patterson, how do you see it? Which I see that, yes, some of them, they, the Japanese, for instance, put people in language school and don't let them go back to Japan for three years. So a lot of these services, my own experience is the Brazilians do a great job. Uh, the Egyptians are good. There are a number of these smaller countries that basically concentrate uh, like a laser on their diplomatic service. And the other thing they do is they, they, they also maneuver very well in the multilateral system. Where the U.S. has, frankly, I think, lost ground dramatically in the past few years. So you'll see some of these smaller countries play a, a wildly disproportionate role in the United Nations and, importantly for us, in the U.N. specialized agencies. Uh, but, but there are a number of countries. Uh, we have a, a question from one of our, he's almost on every webcast and we appreciate it, and that's Ray Termini. Uh, and he asked, how will the Abraham Accords uh, impact, reshape the Middle East? And Ambassador Ford, let me direct that question to you, if I may. I think uh, it's, well, two, two comments. Number one, they build on something that was already there, but was less visible. Uh, there were already contacts between the United Arab Emirates, for example, and Israel. There were already contacts between Morocco and Israel, but they were not very public. Um, now they're public, and I think you'll start to see more public types of uh, collaborative work, whether that be in business, could imagine it might be in defense. I've seen reports that uh, perhaps Iron Dome surface-to-air uh, defense systems might go from Israel out to the United Arab Emirates uh, to deal with Iranian missile threats. I don't know if that's going to happen, but it kind of gives you an idea of, of what might be possible. I would also add this as a cautionary note. Uh, the Palestinian issue does not go away. And sooner or later, um, Israel will still have to deal with that problem. And the Abraham Accords don't really address it. Steve Cotton asked, Is, do you see anyone on the Palestinian side that could be a true leader Do any of you see anybody on the Palestinian side that could be a true leader? I take that's you no, all I, diplomatic I, in saying no. <laughs> no, no, that, uh, it's not an issue uh, in which I was involved. Uh, you know, that was that kind of went to the professional 
peacemakers in the administrations. Dennis uh, Ross and others. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but, you know, those people are out there. The, uh, clearly they are. The one, one thing that Palestinians have had, of course, is an opportunity for uh, higher education, uh, for all of the misery and misgovernance and uh, uh, hostility from, from the Israelis. It is, a, it is an open society in which uh, uh, one can pursue a serious education. Uh, they badly need real leadership. And linking that back to the Abraham Accords, what this may do uh, in an interesting sort of way is give the Palestinians more latitude uh, to find their own future and their own relationship with Israel going into that future. Because uh, truly since uh, the establishment of the state of Israel um, on lands, of course, occupied or held by uh, Palestinians uh, prior to the establishment of the Israeli state. Uh, arguably, the willingness of other Arabs to fight Israel down to the last Palestinian uh, has had a whole lot to do with the Palestinian plight today. So again, as more Arab countries pursue bilateral relationships with Israel, uh, again, almost perversely, the Palestinians may find more freedom and more scope of movement vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Arab countries and Israel than they had in the past. Ambassador Patterson, I'd like to move to this subject and it involves the role of the US military and how it works with diplomats and the overall, I think all three of you would agree, somewhat the militarization of our foreign policy. Tell us about how you worked with the heavy U.S. military aid presence in, in Egypt? Well, mostly, uh, I mean, really, we worked very satisfactorily. Uh, the, the head of the military assistance unit was a, was a two-star general. When I was there, he was then a four-star, was head of the National Guard. It, in, in all my posts, I think we've, we've had very uh, uh, good relations with the military uh, components. But going back to a point that both Ryan and, and uh, Robert raised, one of the problems with the militarization of the foreign policy right now is that State Department is absent. For instance, in, in parts of Syria, uh, we're closed down entirely in, uh, in Libya and Yemen. So of course the military, feel, the US military fills that vacuum um, and, and they don't want to, and they're not, they're not trained and equipped to do so. They want us back out there uh, doing our jobs. But I think most senior ambassadors would tell you the same thing, that they've, had, they've worked hard uh, to, to have good relations with the military and for that matter with the CIA as well. Ryan, Ambassador Crocker, what are your thoughts? Uh, just to build on what Ann said, yes, uh, when, when we hear the, the word used, militarization of foreign policy, many people assume that the military is uh, taking over the whole foreign policy apparatus, and that is absolutely not the case. Uh, they want to see more of this, not less. Uh, they have very high regard uh, for our officers that uh, they in the military have served with. Uh, so these are, uh, these are decisions that are made in Washington at the policy level and not by the military. Uh, so uh, the more, and we have of course, very strong champions in the military for more resources for the State Department uh, 
my friend and almost neighbor, Jim Mattis, famously told uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, you'd better fund the State Department budget request in full. Otherwise, I'm just going to have to buy more ammunition. Ambassador Ford, uh, you are the only ambassador who I think resigned from the Foreign Service essentially over our policy in Syria, if that's accurate. That's, uh, what led you to resign? Um, and do you feel that it accomplished what you hoped it did? Did you, did you resign more for your personal reasons or did you hope it would make a statement and perhaps modify policy? No, I didn't resign to change the policy. Uh, the policy was President Obama's policy and he was elected, not me. Uh, I just couldn't defend the policy anymore publicly. Um, and I was in a position where I was regularly called upon to do so. Um, I had frankly some hearings uh, in front of the United States Congress where I defended the president's policy. Uh, it was a policy that I privately disagreed with. Um, and I will be very frank, um, several of the senators made the attacks very personal. And I decided that I was not going to have my integrity touched upon or um, smirched uh, over a policy that I didn't even agree with in the first place. And uh, so those hearings were in the summer and uh, Secretary Kerry asked me to stay on for a while, which I agreed to do. Um, I didn't think it was gonna change Obama's policy and that wasn't the intention. How effective Ambassador Patterson is the dissent channel? Well, historically, not very effective, to be honest. Uh, I understand that there have been efforts to, I think early in my career, which was 43 years, uh, it was more effective. Uh, but, but I, and I think there have been efforts now to revive it in, uh, in this administration. That, that's what I understand. So for people to truly dissent, um, there's really not, uh, there's really not a, a vehicle that, that enables that. Well, we have uh, a little, about 10 minutes left and Afghanistan could probably take an hour, but Ambassador Crocker, I think the question on Afghanistan goes to you. You can imagine we have several questions from our audience about Afghanistan and the leaked letter and the prospective peace settlements or negotiations. Um, okay, well, that's um, pretty pretty broad gauged. Uh, look, these uh, <clears throat> these talks that were initiated by uh, Zal Khalilzad <clears throat> directly with the Taliban uh, uh, was probably the worst possible thing we could have done if we seek some level of stability in Afghanistan to protect our own national security interests. Uh, by, by sitting down with the Taliban in the absence of the Afghan government, uh, we gave the Taliban what they had been asking for from, from the beginning. They will talk to us, but they will not talk to our puppets. Uh, so simply by sitting down that first time, uh, the Afghan government was delegitimized uh, in a very serious manner. And that has simply continued. We, we pressured them to release 5,000 Taliban prisoners. We had committed to the Taliban, they would be released. The Afghan government was not even part of that decision, uh, but we hold all the cards. We forced them to do it and they did. So what we're looking at now as we approach May 1 is the worst possible situation I can imagine for us. Uh, 
either President Biden extends the period uh, because the Taliban have met none of their own uh, undertakings, uh, in which case I think there is a very high likelihood the Taliban is going to start shooting at our, our folks in Afghanistan. We've had exactly one uh, combat casualty in the past year. Uh, if um, the president elects to stay, uh, I think that number is going to go up. And uh, as we look at the political tenor around this country, uh, that will be unacceptable. So uh, <clears throat> if, uh, and if we leave, of course, let's face it, let's be, let's be clear about this. The Taliban will retake the country, or at least most of it, in what will be a horrific civil war. And in that war, the, those who will bear the greatest pain are going to be the Afghan females, girls and women, uh, that successive administrations, starting with George W. Bush, uh, did everything they could to empower with the implicit understanding that if you women step forward, we've got your back. But now it's, oh my goodness, look at the time. Uh, uh, it's been real, but it's time to go. Goodbye and good luck. What level of troops do you think? What level of troops do you think we should have? Uh, I, I am not in a position to judge that. The importance of our troop presence uh, is not the firepower they bring. We have not been involved directly in combat operations for quite some time now. It's the signal it sends. If we have deployed forces, by definition, the country in which they are deployed is a top-tier priority for the administration. Uh, that everybody holds their punches because, uh-oh, uh, you, you can get the full wrath of the greatest power on earth uh, down on your heads. So it's, it's at this point, uh, more symbolic than it is actual, but symbols really count. Do either of you, uh, Ambassador Patterson or Ford, uh, wish to add or anything to what Ambassador Cocker just said? So, so let me let me make a couple comments. Here, here, the Biden administration's options are all bad, and some may be slightly less bad than others. But, but they inherited, as as Ryan says, an extremely difficult hand here. And my fear is uh, that if some settlement is not reached, that the U.S. shall just withdraw precipitously. And, and I entirely agree with Ryan that it's not about the firepower that these forces can fight, it's about confidence. It's about, it's, it's conveying confidence to everyone. So I thought this, this, this uh, approach by Tony Blinken and the peace conference and engaging the U.N., it's worth a shot. Uh, to see how it plays off out, to see if he can delay the, the departure date. Um, it's been 20 years. When I was in Pakistan, we were spending $10 billion a month across the border in Afghanistan. And, and like I say, the options here now are really all bad. Quickly moving to Syria, Ambassador Ford, do you see what options does the Biden administration have? Is there any way for it to... Uh, Take a leader for the United States to take a leadership role is one of the questions that we have coming in from our audience. So, first of all, on this, the 10th anniversary of the Syrian revolution, it's obviously a huge tragedy. That's the first, maybe the most important point. Second point is uh, Paul mentioned Bob McNamara's book in retrospect about Vietnam. And one of the points that McNamara makes at the conclusion of his uh, mea culpa about the mistakes 
the Americans made in Vietnam, as he said, it's important to recognize that there are some problems overseas that America just cannot fix. And I think Syria absolutely now falls into that category. Whatever window there was where the Americans could have helped bring about a settlement to a tragic conflict and civil war, I think that window is closed. The window is closed. Uh, I do think there is a role still for the United States to play in terms of helping uh, Syrian refugees. Half the country has had to flee uh, their homes. Uh, they're either outside of the country in places like Lebanon, where the conditions are particularly bad, uh, but also in Jordan, Turkey, other parts of uh, Europe and the Middle East. I think the Americans focusing more effort um, to generate resources from the world, uh, not just American resources, but worldwide, uh, would be particularly useful now. Um, we have a challenge coming up. Uh, there is a part of Syria in the Northwest that the United Nations is responsible for getting humanitarian aid into, food, medicines, vaccines for the virus right now. Uh, that part of Syria is still under opposition control and it's blockaded by the Syrian government. And the Russians are now saying they're gonna remove the UN operation. They're gonna use their veto in the Security Council to shut down that UN operation. That would be in early July. And I think if they do that, uh, the United States will have to lead an effort to stand up a new humanitarian aid operation to get aid from Southern Turkey into those two and a half million displaced civilians. Um, but I don't see any role for the US military in Eastern Syria now. I think ISIS is largely defeated and contained. Paul, I wanna bring you into the conversation since you're the author and uh, tell us about in your career, how you worked with ambassadors and were they good sources or did you find that uh, you really couldn't get through and you had to go to others? Well, once you get to them, they're great. And that's one thing that made me wanna do the book. It's, you know, some, often it's not as easy as, uh, as reporters would like to get to them. It, there are layers of the, uh, you know, uh, news department bureaucracies uh, that keep them from us. Um, but they know everything. They're interesting, interesting people. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the rule always has been as much contact as you can get, the better. And, and, you know, Ambassador Crocker, where you couldn't go freely around Kabul or uh, Baghdad, I suspect that you depended for getting some intelligence from journalists. Uh, certainly not intelligence. That's a very sensitive word vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States government and our, uh, our, our journalists. Knowledge. But Knowledge. I, have al <laughs> I have always found uh, international correspondence, particularly American correspondence, to be very, very high valuable. They, at, at one level, they do the same thing the Foreign Service does, uh, which is get the story right. You can't do anything from a policy level if you haven't got the basic story right. So starting really in Lebanon back in the early 80s, a very fraught time, uh, I, I developed uh, relationships and later friendships with the uh, that endure to this day with people like uh, Robin Wright, uh, now with the New Yorker, uh, then with the Times of London, Mike uh, 
the LA Times, Doyle McManus, uh, Johnny Mike Kennedy, Becky Kennedy, uh, you know, Paul, the, your colleagues. I mean, they were superb. And on it goes. One of the things that worries me the most about uh, America and the world right now uh, is that the core of American foreign correspondence is maybe one tenth what it was back when I was in Lebanon in the early 80s. Everybody had a bureau in Beirut then and in Jerusalem and in Cairo and on and on and on. Most of those are all gone. It, it's the New York Times, uh, it is the Associated Press and another rung or two down in terms of numbers and coverage to the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. So the region has never been more complex than it is now and our capacity as a citizenry to understand that complexity through seasoned foreign correspondence has never been less. Well, I wanna thank all of you, Paul. Thank you for writing the book. And I wanna encourage everyone to, 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 to pick up a copy. I know you can get it at Interabang Books. Uh, like I said, I read it over a year ago and it was fascinating. And it was great that you were able to get these people who are usually pretty humble to, to talk and, and uh, hear others talk with them. And uh, Liz, I'll turn it over to you, the president of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. <laughs> well, thank you, Jim. Thank you. That was a great job. And thanks to all of you. It is thrilling to have your expertise. And it was an illuminating conversation on such a critical uh, topic to our foreign uh, policy and national security. So thank you very much for joining us. And uh, Jim mentioned picking up a copy of the book. We do want you to do that. Just remember to use code DFWWORLD and you'll get a 10% off discount. And you can catch up on all of our past programs on our YouTube channel at DFWWORLD. And last, if you are not a member yet, please become one. We love seeing you. I'd love to meet you in person. And so look to our website for more information on membership, and we'll hopefully see you in the morning. Thanks so much again to all of you. Thanks to all of the audience and have a good evening. Goodbye.